Good morning or afternoon. My name is Cheryl, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the State of the Capital Market conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you should need assistance during the call, please press star then zero, and an operator will come back on the line to assist you. Thank you. Mark Penziner, Principal and Financial Advisor, you may begin your conference. Thank you. And let me start by saying thank you to everyone who's joining the call either live today or listens to it on the replay. Today is going to be the first of what we hope will be an ongoing set of calls to keep you posted on the most pressing issues in the market. I'm joined first by Doug Peebles. Doug is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Fixed Income at Bernstein. He joined the firm all the way back in 1987. He supervises all bond portfolios at Bernstein Globally and is chairman of our interest rates and currency research teams. I'm delighted to have him join us today. Doug, from your seat, overseeing all the fixed income teams across the globe, where do you see things today? Well, I, I, I actually think that um, from my seat, I, I think fixed income is important, but I don't think this is just about fixed income in, in today's marketplace. I think there are a couple of very big themes that, that are going on right now. And, and so we have some, some combination of cyclical, cyclical and secular issues that we're dealing with. I, I think the first one to talk about, I, I like to talk about um, central bank policy. I'll, I'll focus for the time being on the Fed. And there's been a lot of discussion and you know the, the, the notion that the Fed finally tightened in December of last year. And our thesis has been for a while now that the, that the Fed raised interest rates for the first time in December of last year, but they actually started tightening way back in July of 2014. And my definition of that is that in July of 2014, the Fed's balance sheet reached $4.4 trillion, so that was the apex from quantitative easing, and today it still stands at $4.4 trillion. And that lack of growth of the balance sheet has in effect been a tightening of policy. And and I think that is probably the most important thing that's going on in the world of finance, of investments today. Um, now, the, the other big things are, I think we're in a period of very, very low and slowing nominal GDP growth globally. And I say nominal because it's not real GDP growth, it's real plus inflation. And, and I think that that remains a, a big problem. And the third, the third thing that, um, that I see going on is the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank have tried to play Me Too with the Fed. And I think that we've reached, at least in the eyes of the marketplace currently, the, the, the point of diminishing marginal returns that QE – had been successful in for the Fed and in early stages for both the BOJ and the ECB in driving asset prices higher, but the market has now come to the conclusion, your guess is as good as mine whether or not it's temporary or not, but it's come to the conclusion that, geez, just by printing money doesn't make things better. And there's no magic. You know, if, if there was magic in printing money, Argentina would have the best performing markets over long periods of time. So, so you've brought in the conversation to global. I'm, I'm going to guess that a number of people on the line are going to think, how does China fit into that story? So China fits in in that, you know, front and center in that slowing nominal GDP growth environment. So I, I think one, one of the, the biggest things to remember with China is <clears throat> if we look back 10 or 12 years, 
you know, China's real GDP growth was growing at, let's say, 12%, 13%, excuse me, and inflation was somewhere around 5 So China had this massive nominal GDP growth of almost upwards towards 20%. And now, you know, you tell me where growth is in China. I think most people would say 6 is where real growth is. And by the way, they're in deflation. So they have a negative GDP deflator. So nominal growth went from almost 20 to 5. And credit growth was enormous. And if you take on all that debt, when your expectations is nominal growth will bail you out at nearly 20% growth, and you need to pay back all that debt in a 5% growth environment, that's a problem. And 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 I think that that, that is a very big, if, if not the most important part of this slowing nominal growth environment. And, and so what does China's slowing nominal growth mean to Australia, other emerging market countries, South America, that have piggybacked off the of Chinese So at anybody who invested as if China was going to grow 16 17% nominally out into the future is now paying for that. And, and that was broadly speaking, in areas that were exporters of – the first derivative would be those who were exporters of natural resources. So you mentioned Canada and Australia, excellent. Um, Also, you know, Brazil, uh, you know, any any of those places. So it's not just emerging markets. It's those places. In America, the – the the area that is furthest out on that whip would be uh, an energy exploration, right? And so all of these areas that that ties back into this quantitative easing, so if a lot of money is being thrown away, uh, thrown out there, and people can borrow that money at very, very low rates, almost every single time in the history of mankind they do stupid things with that money. And and I think at, on this side, they've done stupid things with that money again. So that's the first derivative. The second derivative will be, if this continues within China, then it's not just the direct involvement of exploiters of natural resources. There is second derivative, such as real estate globally outside of China, particularly in the expensive areas. So we talk about it in Western Canada or Toronto or Perth or Sydney, but you know, we're sitting here in Manhattan, and there's been plenty of very expensive real estate purchased in Manhattan by 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 uh, the Chinese investors. So you touched on stupid things done with the money, and you also mentioned energy. Energy prices are down. You picked the percentage, right, with oil trading at, let's just call it 30 in the U.S. There's been a lot of talk that that will have an impact on, and already has had an impact on, the high-yield part of the bond market. What does that look like to you? Well, I, I, there's no doubt that that you know, to in, it, with today's lower prices in the energy uh, bond space, right? So, so a lot of the E and P names are trading at 50, 60 cents on the dollar already. Uh, I think correctly forecasting that we will have defaults in that space. Um, however, what it doesn't take into consideration is is frankly how much lower energy prices helps the other 85% of the names in in the high yield index, but. This is where we are in the cycle, right? We're in the in the part of the cycle, and I go back to this lack of Fed balance sheet growth. Uh, so there's been a lot of bad borrowing, right? Um, and there's been a, a search for yield globally, and 
And so there were more than w willing investors who were willing to lend that money at what then seemed like good interest rates of six or seven, and now it seems like a really bad idea. And that tends to feed on itself. And because the Fed is no longer in buying $80 billion worth of treasuries and mortgages every month, that means that the, the markets, the risky markets in particular, as if the Fed was buying $80 billion of, of treasuries from banks, banks took the money and invested in some other space. Or mutual fund investors sold into the Fed bid and put the money someplace else. And I think that those decisions, which, which were based not so much on this is a great bargain, but what else am I going to do with the money, those decisions are, are becoming problematic. Now, I, I will say that when I look back in history and I look at all other times that the high-yield market traded at this, the spread levels where we're trading today or even at the yield levels of 8 or 9%, um, you know, an investment in high yield over the next three years looked really, really smart. It might not look great over the next three weeks or three months, but over the next three years, it looks really, really smart. So now I, I need to balance that a little bit with the liquidity in the markets are really, really bad. Um, and, and I think that that creates opportunity for active investing, but it, it is a environment where I wouldn't be surprised over the next three weeks or even three months that things got worse than they are now. If, if you're going to play in that space, do you have to be really selective and not buy a high-yield ETF or something in yeah, that space? I mean, because it, I'm guessing whether or not you're buying energy companies or somewhere else in the high-yield space is going to matter a lot. Oh, yeah. There's there's no doubt about that. And, and so passive high-yield investing, um, it just – doesn't doesn't sit right with me now ETFs I actually like ETFs as a trading vehicle because it provides more liquidity in a marketplace that doesn't have a lot of liquidity but as as far as investing as opposed to trading ETFs uh, I, I you know the, the the numbers speak for themselves and it's been a poor substitute for active investing in the high yield space so so we're talking a bit when we talk about high yield about being opportunistic or return-seeking in the bond space. For, for most of our clients, when, when they turn to your bond teams, they're looking for what we're calling risk mitigating, yeah. but I'm thinking of stability. And so how does the municipal funds that they're invested in or the intermediate duration fund that's in their portfolio think about the world where there's lots of risk out there, but they're supposed to be that anchor? Yeah, and, and so I think that you need to, to – all investors should be thinking about their bonds not as instruments that have a coupon and a maturity date. They should be thinking of their bonds are the, the really high-quality ones serve that risk-mitigating role, and then there are other ones that are more return-seeking in nature. So the high-yield market or emerging markets in general, bank loans, even some of the, the, the subprime investments, they tend to be a lot, a lot more correlated to the equity market than they are the bond market. Right. And so – if you think about a 60-40 portfolio allocation, the reason you have 40% in bonds is that they can be that have that negative correlation. And so if the equity market sells off and the bond market rallies, you can rebalance and get that free you know, effort that, that is essentially the only free lunch in the marketplace. But if you and, – and we saw a lot of this in, in you know, post the financial crisis. If people said – wow, interest rates are really, really low, so then they have to rise, but I still need to keep my 40% in bonds, so I'm going to buy high yield in my 40%. Right. Then you have one portfolio 
that is highly correlated to the, or 100% of your portfolio that's highly correlated to the equity risk premium. And that's not what you want. So I think that there are opportunities in, in the in the high yield space, I think, or the return seeking space for fixed income. And by the way, you know, as Americans, we tend to be a, a little bit parochial when we think about our markets. Uh, but a, a treasury, a 10-year treasury at 180 actually is a high yield in today's global environment. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be funny about that. Uh, German, German 10 years trade at 20 basis points. Japan, is, the last several days, has had periods where the 10-year traded negative. And so if you can buy what seems to be a solid currency and, and pick up uh, 150, there, there is demand for that risk-free asset. The muni space, I happen to like the muni space a lot at the moment because it is the, the, least, or the, 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 the least global of the markets. And so it really depends upon the U.S. economy and in, in, a, in a world where of slowing GDP growth, the U.S. is one place where this, the GDP growth is actually quite stable. Now, I think that we're in, a we're in a depression when it comes to the commodity space. I think that we're in a recession globally when it comes to industrial space. But the, the, the sort of sweet spot has really been around the service space, particularly in America. And, and muni revenues are, are by and large driven on what's, what's going on in America. So, so from a credit perspective, the, the municipal market still has that real nice quality of, uh, of, of strong fundamentals and, and still providing that risk mitigating factor that you want so much in your portfolio allocation. Last question to put you um, under the gun in terms of prognosticating. Do you think the Fed moves throughout the rest of the year, and if so, how much, and what is that contingent on? So I, I, uh, I'll answer your question because people tell me that I, oftentimes I don't answer questions. I, I think the Fed is is in the process of backing down from their four increases that they've talked about. By, by the way, I don't I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the dots that the put, Fed puts out there. I do spend quite a bit of time saying, okay, the market thinks X and the Fed thinks Y. Where are we going to move to? Is the market going to move to the Fed or is the Fed going to? And, and I think without a doubt that the Fed is moving towards the market. And the market never believed that they were going to do four, four increases in 2016 anyway. So that's the answer to your question. I don't think it matters. I don't think that the market started selling off because of what the Fed did in December to now. I think what the market is saying is, holy smokes, they really did start tightening way back in July of 2014. And, and I think the, the, the second thing is that the, what, once they admit that that's the situation, then they say to themselves, holy crow, can 25 basis points or lack of QE actually be all of this tightening? And so are we really in an environment where, where the, the term, you know, the, the, the fair value for interest rates is as low as it is? And if that is the case, then I think that, that what they're also saying is, wow, maybe these valuations and the risk-seeking assets are just too rich. Thank you, Doug. Let me turn now to Tara Popernick. Tara is the Director of Research in our Wealth Planning Analysis Group. Tara joined the firm in 2003. She's responsible for leading research projects on investment planning and asset allocation for our clients. Tara, you've heard Doug's view on the world today, but your group is more focused on taking the long view. And so what do you think the impact of today's market has for clients over the long term? 
and what does that environment have on how you approach client plans? Sure, Mark. So one of the, the most important things when we are forecasting is to take into account today's conditions because our research shows that starting conditions really matter as far as not just looking out one, two, three years, but 10, 20, 30 years down the road, which is really the horizon for an individual if, say, you're planning a retirement. So our current outlook for global bonds is actually quite low. Uh, we're, we're looking at about a, a 2% return over the next 10 years or so in bonds and in stocks just north of 6%. So you've got a rate of return forecast of 6 on stock, 2 on fixed income. Do those forecasts change if you look at different areas of the equity market? So we'll have clients say it. Can I move that number if I were to move more international or emerging markets, or is it better here? Do those change in terms of your long-term forecast? Sure, they they certainly do. Um, you know, first and foremost, our, our our forecast for stocks beating bonds is actually quite high today versus a normal environment. So if if you want return and if you need return, particularly if you're retiring, you need to have some portion of your portfolio, a sizable portion of your portfolio, in stocks. From there, um, you know, we, we look at international versus U.S., and, and there is some um, tilt to where the, the odds of the international markets outperforming the U.S. or the developed markets outperforming the emerging markets outperforming the developed markets is slightly higher if we take a long view versus today's conditions, but there is going to be volatility there. In fact, there's more volatility today than, than there was just recently, so we have to keep that in mind. So if, if I'm a retiree or I'm 50 or 60 years old and I'm thinking about retirement on the horizon, what does this ultimately practically mean for me in terms of asset allocation, right? So D Doug talked about high yield and, and the notion of people reaching for income or reaching for yield. And so that person is thinking, you know what, I'm, I, I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70. I'm at a place now where I want to put my money, quote-unquote, under the mattress or bonds and take my 4 or 5% tax-free. Doug told us that's not there today in the muni space. So, so what does the asset allocation answer become for them? Sure. So, so the first and foremost, you have to get the broad allocation right, and that is a mix of stocks and bonds that isn't just going to get you the return that you need, but it has a volatility profile that you're going to be able to live with. And how do you test that? How do we, how do we know that for someone? So we, we talk through with clients a lot, how would you feel if the portfolio took this kind of a, a drawdown, a 10% drawdown, a 20% drawdown, and we find that most people's pain point, the, the point at which they would want to capitulate and do something different, is somewhere within that 10 to 20% loss range. And by capitulate, you mean sell? Sell, change. And unfortunately, the time that you're changing your allocation is the worst time in those scenarios right. because the, the second follow-on question is, well, when do you get back in? And if you don't get back in at the right time, you've done irreversible damage to your portfolio over the long run and irreversible damage to your ability to spend or your ability to leave a legacy, whatever it is your goal happens to be. So we want to make sure we get the allocation right from the outset and then from there, we look at things like if you need more income, moving some of those high-yield investments into the return-seeking portion of the portfolio, sourcing them from equities, not from bonds, leaving bonds there to be stable for you, and then additional targeted opportunities, 
some liquids to provide um, diversification. So you have the, um, the ability to generate additional sources of return from not just stocks and bonds. So is it fair to say that as you think through asset allocation today in a lower return environment, clearly on the fixed side and on the equity side, that the, the result is going to be that people as they enter and are in retirement are likely going to have more equity than they otherwise would have fallen? Yes, probably so. With more volatility. With, than with they more volatility. Um, the, the only silver lining we see is that in this low return environment, we're also forecasting a lower inflationary environment than maybe we'd seen over the past 20, 30 years. And with that low inflation environment, that's actually the only tailwind that I, I could give to, to a retiree who's then going to be living on a portfolio is that perhaps your expenses may not um, increase with the same amount of, of pace as they may have historically. And, not and to say that's true in all sectors. Um, you know, healthcare, for instance, tends to outpace general inflation. And last question, you and I have talked about this before, that as, as you retire, think about retirement, the real risk is in a market pullback, because those are going to happen and those will normalize over the course of your retirement. The real risk is prolonged inflation. Right. It's, it's that you would have to draw more money out of your portfolio over a longer and longer period of time because you did the great thing and lived really long, but inflation also crept up and forced you to eat into your principal faster than you otherwise would have. Thank you, Tara. So that'll conclude our call. I hope we kept it to uh, about 20 minutes and kept it in terms of your expectations for what you'd get out of it. Um, feel free to email me directly any follow-up questions, and otherwise, I look forward to speaking with you all soon. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.